to the Yoga Living Project. This week we have a satsang, which was titled History and Styles of Yoga. Um, and I'd say for the first 20 to 25 minutes of this 60-minute uh, talk, um, that's you know the majority of it and it gets through that stuff pretty quickly and um, it can be kind of heady and like whoa like overwhelming because if you know anything about yoga the history is deep and um, and then we kind of brush over the styles a little bit as we get into some some bigger topics um, you know start to ask the question what are we doing here where are we come from who are we and and maybe even most importantly, where are we going? So um, we had a great group for this chat. The satsangs that we hold at Cambio are uh, super fun. It's If you've never been or you don't even know what a satsang is, it's just a community discussion. It's usually a talk about a specific topic. Um, there's usually always, um, you know, like a feel of like it being a, a Socratic seminar in terms of people allowed to ask questions and share their ideas and um, you know I just whoever's leading it kind of moderates it and keeps it going um, they're always community-based at Cambio so that means that um, in line with our mission to make yoga accessible uh, the satsangs are always donation-based so without further ado let's get into it I hope you enjoy it and get something out of it and would love to see you at our next satsang, the last Sunday of this month, August, I think it's 27th at 4.30, this month we are doing a chat about philosophy. So it's just a general Q&A on yoga philosophy. So that could really go any which way direction. The, the theme of the month for August um, is non-attachment. So each week we're going to kind of be exploring different aspects of non-attachment. Week one is acceptance. Week two is, uh, oh geez, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. What is week two? Week two is uh, letting go. Week three is um, impermanence. And week four is discriminative discernment or vivica. So um, by the time we get through these four weeks of theming around non-attachment, I'm sure uh, some some of the community members might have some really good questions and, and angles to take in terms of the topic of the satsang being around philosophy. So, now truly without further ado, here we go. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. At us, as always. style of yoga. <laughs> Where does yoga come from? Let's start with that. How old is yoga? What do we know? Really, really old. Older than us? Yeah. Yes. Like, what was it? 3,000 3, BC? Three. There's estimates that it's like 3,000 to maybe 5,000, possibly older. Uh-huh. 
So the earliest roots start with the texts, the Vedas. And uh, do you know what the word Veda means? No? Life? No, Veda is like uh, like truth. Oh, truth. Like truth, yeah. Um, so in the beginning, <laughs> there was nothing written down. Right. And this is the thing that's cool about yoga is that it's like the longest standing, um, or even Vedas, it's the longest standing single origin, like unbroken chain of cultural knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right? So there was no like huge war that wiped out the civilization and all the knowledge was lost. In fact, the information from the Vedas is dated around 5000 BC. Mm -hmm. And then Gerard Feuerstein states that it wasn't written down until thousand BC, so many, many years later. And so it was just orally transferred. The and Aboriginals did that had their knowledge is orally transferred orally too for thousands yeah. of years. I just don't know where they're at, you know? Yeah. Where they yeah, like what different the history like is. This is going on here and this is going on it's here. It's always very sweaty in the well, a lot of the a lot of the um, a lot of the knowledge from the Vedas wasn't privy for the Westerners until the 19th century. They kept it secret, which is pretty fascinating, actually. Um, but, yeah, the other aspect that was really kind of astounding is that they're the organization of memory, like how specific they were in it being like this, this, and this. Um, so that's kind of like the the pre-classical period, or the, no, actually it's called the archaic period. That's the archaic period. So that's where it all comes from. And this was before even Hinduism was called Hinduism. So this was called Advaita Vedanta. Hmm. So this is the era of truth of non-dualism. Is basically what this means. Advaita means non-dualistic. So are we familiar with the term non-dualistic? Meaning? <laughs> what does it mean? Well, there's no there's no one side or the other it's mixed in. So, like this concept of good and bad, for example, it's not as black and white, clear cut. Yeah, and it goes all the way to the extreme of God, the idea of God. There's one there's one supreme being that created it all, that started it all, that's behind everything. And you're no different than I am on the inside. The light that shines, like when we say namaste, I recognize the light within you is the same as within me. This is the underlying thing. Hey, are you here for Sat Song? Yes. Yay, welcome. Breaking up the voice. Thank you. Yeah, it was a voice right? class. <laughs> Sorry, I'm late. Baby was feeding. Oh, great. No, that's okay. We're At her mercy right now. Do you know all the names here? Rich. Yeah. And I don't think I remember uh, Steve. Steve, sorry. And remind us your name. Julia. Julia, that's right. And I'm Austin. Nice to meet you. Again. I haven't seen you, I don't think, since the last one. Um, well, I came to a couple of your yin classes. Oh, that's right. Well, it's so dark in there, I don't even recognize Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're talking tonight about the history and styles of yoga. Cool. So, um, so in terms of history, I just want to cover kind of the four big epochs and eras of yoga. And we've covered the first one already, the archaic period, which is where the original kind of uh, like-minded thinking and philosophy came out of to create yoga eventually, many thousands of years later. 
Um, and this was called, this original thinking was called Veda, or, which means truth. And the, the kind of the religion behind it was the Advaita Vedanta. So then we get into pre-classical era. Pre-classical era is um, like, if you've ever heard of the Upanishads. Have you ever heard of the Upanishads? Mm-hmm. Okay, so do we know what the Upanishads, what the word means itself? So it means secret teachings or secret knowledge. Um, so this was, I mean, if you can kind of imagine, this was a neat time because um, if you wanted to go study with like a yoga master, you would have to go out into the forest. And it was a scary thing then because there wasn't cell phones. There wasn't likelihood of a return. If you went out to go study as a monastic or basically what we would call a monk, they call aesthetics or Brahmins. But if you wanted to like do that with your life, it would basically be like, bye mom, bye dad, thanks for a great 15, 16 years of life. I'm never going to see you again because it was just commonly understood that the spiritual practice as all the liberation teachings, that's what yoga is. Yoga is one of the collective schools from the East called liberation teachings. It's a teaching based on liberating us. Um, and we'll, we can talk more about that later, but it's a, it takes a lifetime at least to, to accomplish. So the Upanishads were compendiums to go with the Vedas. So the Vedic were written in very kind of a, what's called twilight language. So a lot of times like words like sun and moon, you know, wouldn't mean the literal sun, wouldn't mean the literal moon, it would mean energies in the body. That's one example, but there was a lot of twilight language where they would use even the same word for several different meanings. Um, and today, there's still like scholars working on properly defining the Vedas for the actual transliteration of them. Um, so anyway, so you've got that's pre-classical, the Upanishad period, um, and it's confusing because the Upanishads. There's the original Upanishads that go with the Vedas when you put pre-classical. Then there's later Upanishads that were written in like the 15th, 16th century that go with um, with yoga specifically. So those original Upanishads don't mention the word yoga. Also in the pre-classical era, there's two major books that I'm sure you've all heard of: the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana. The Ramayana. So Bhagavad Gita, we studied, we're studying both of these texts in the 300 hour, um, but this is the first text to really mention yoga, to really say, okay, not only yoga is a thing in the world, but this is what yoga is. And it defines it numerous times in the book. It says, um, you know, I guess kind of the most famous baseline definition from the Bhagavad Gita in terms of what yoga is, is that yoga is uh, virtue in action. It's one way of putting it, one definition that I've seen. So it's really centered around it being a practical um, thing. It's not just a theory. It's not just a philosophy. It needs to be acted upon. It needs to be done. And so we can relate this in the in the West to like the Gnostics, the Gnostics of Christianity. So like a lot of times, you know, we look at like monks from, you know, I don't know, certain certain Western traditions, and they're not doing um, they're doing rituals, but there's I don't know. Some some might criticize them for being there's an emptiness to them because they're not tied specifically to a specific result. 
Whereas in yoga, you do things for specific results. And same with the Gnostic Christians. Um, they were doing certain rituals, certain rites, certain ceremonies and sacrifices for a specific things. Um, so then we get to the classical period. Is there anything you want to say about the Gita or the Ramayana? Okay. Well, the Ramayana, by the way, they're both... Ramayana doesn't mention the word yoga, but it mentions tapas. And so tapas is to be taken as yoga because that's the action that creates a certain result. Um, so then we get in the classical period. This is where Patanjali's Yoga Sutras come in. And this is called Raja Yoga, defined as royal yoga. And he defines yoga a little bit differently than the Bhagavad Gita does. He says... It's not so much an action, it's a state of being. And this state of being has to do with, as we talked about this last month in the studio, stopping the turnings of the mind. So we've come into a place where we're not subject to um, the push and the pull of our own preferences in life, of the physical material. Patanjali is the one aspect of the whole lineage of yoga where there's like a big asterisk next to it because he, some would argue, says that this is a dualistic philosophy. Uh, so some people don't say he's dualistic. I'm not going to go into it. But um, Patanjali is basically the... You know, when we study yoga, that's kind of where we go to, is the yoga sutras. If we're going to go deep into the philosophy, the sutras are really short text, and it's meant to be kind of, um, it's like a primer. It's like, I'm giving you this text because I already know you know a certain amount of information, because if you didn't, these would make no sense. So you need a teacher to unpack the sutras, each little... Um, Shastra or aphorism as they're called each one is very esoteric lots of twilight language very vague and very succinct and short so it's not it's the kind of thing where you say well what does he mean there and people have written volumes and volumes and volumes on it and most of the authorities on the sutras agree on most of the major points there's certain points of contention here along the way between people like Vyasa and Shankara um, there's other great ones too but moving along go into the post-classical period of yoga and we're almost into like modern yoga now so the post-classical period is what you would call tantra so tantra um, in the tantric period we get a form of tantra and tantra specific it gets even more and more specific into ritual as practice as ritual to create a specific result the cool thing about Tantra is it's like everything's on the table. You can use breath, you can use asana, you can use meditation, you can use bandhas, you can use sexual energy, everything. Um, the real fundamental teaching of the Tantras happens in the Hatha Yoga practice. So Hatha is a word, do you know? Do you remember what Hatha means or do you know what Hatha means? I remember hearing it, but I can't Yeah, so Hatha is like the umbrella kind of definition of the yoga we do now. So you could just say it's the yoga of the body. Whereas Raja Yoga, Patanjali's yoga, that's like the yoga of the mind. So now we start to get into, okay, now we're going to use yoga of the body. Hatha has kind of a dual meaning. More conventionally it's thought of as like forceful. The idea of force. So we're forcing things to move. And specifically what we're trying to force, the goal of Hatha Yoga is to get Kundalini to rise which is the serpent energy at the base of the spine. As it uncoils and moves up the spine to the crown, 
it unleashes spiritual power, spiritual knowledge, spiritual insight, and eventually liberation from suffering. So this liberation teaching, that's how this applies into this. Um, questions so far? This is a lot, right? We're almost out of it. We're almost out of it. So, so this almost takes us to... So the Hatha Yoga text, first ones, Garakshas is like, I don't know, 13th, 14th century. The three bigwis, the Hatha Yoga Pratipaka, the Garanda Samhita, Shiva Samhita, those are like 15th, 16th, even as late as 17th century, the Garanda Samhita. Um, so this is really like almost modern yoga. Um, and this is, if you think about it, it's kind of a cool unfolding. So you start with the Vedas, which is like this really esoteric, and, you know, it's actually Veda, I'm sorry, Veda means the truth of the hymn or hymn truth. So they're, they're like sung, they're like songs. So it's like, what, what is supposed to be meant by these? And the Upanishads come out to kind of help clarify it, but it's still considered sacred knowledge, secret knowledge as well. Then Patanjali says, okay, let me make this more concise because all those writings are so voluminous. Voluminous. And he says, I'm going to make it really concise, but only people who are in the know will know what I'm even talking about. And then Tantra starts to say, okay, now we're going to start to make yoga for all the people. And Hatha Yoga says, not only are we going to make yoga for all the people, but we're going to make it very specific to dealing with nadis, kundalini, and creating a, a adamantine body, a really strong physical body, so that you shine and reflect the luminosity of the Lord, as uh, Iyengar says in the light of yoga. So that takes us through kind of the history because then, um, you know, India gets colonized by the Brits and yoga is not so kosher, which probably isn't the right word for what the Brits would say. But, um, but it's, kind of kept de- it's kind of kept down and then there's a weird cultural swing where like the Indians also start to get engaged in the cultural life of the Brits. So they start to lose... Um, their sense of value around yoga and they start to think oh like I want to be you know live in this western modern world and so between the fact that the Brits look down upon it and they're the ones in power and the Indians are starting to become more and more appropriated into the culture of the Brits yoga starts to take a backseat and almost disappears in the next couple hundred years Um, and it starts to shine forth through certain guys bringing it to the west that like this is where we come into the last hundred years like Vivekananda is the first one kind of on documentation that speaks at the world um, the world fair in Chicago in 1896 and he talks about Advaita Vedanta specifically and his yoga is not so Hatha yoga in fact he, he kind of thinks that the body is vile and he's more about like just meditation and duty to the Lord um, but then you get other guys who come out like Krishna Macharya starts to teach all these people who later come into the West, like Ayengar, um, Indra Devi, who goes to South America and teaches it. Um, Patabi Joyce, who doesn't really spread it that much in America, except for a lot of Westerners and Americans go to him, especially in the 70s, and make Ashtanga Yoga famous. Um, then you've got Shivananda, Swami Shivananda, who's you know huge in the West. and So now, all these like little branches of different kinds of yoga, this is where we start talking about the styles of yoga. They start to come out of this concept of Hatha Yoga. And so, Hatha Yoga is 
different from Raja Yoga because the goal the goal is different well the goal is the same but Hatha Yoga is saying you don't need Raja Yoga to do it and some authorities though do say Hatha Yoga prepares you to do Raja Yoga properly so there is some some dissent there um, but so that's the history and it starts to come over to the west and the westerners are like they're super thirsty for it because we start to move into the age of enlightenment because the industrial age comes along it starts to shift people's way of life in ways that they start to think differently about life they start to reflect on things in a completely different way they start to think well wait a minute now that I'm not needed as much at the factory or whatever I was doing or maybe I am maybe now I'm going to go join the workforce like maybe only a few people did my family because we are all farmers or whatever it starts to challenge them with these questions of who am I where did we come from what am I doing here and where am I going the four fundamental questions and so some of these early adopters these great thinkers of the age of enlightenment like Thoreau Emerson um William Blake, they start studying some of these Indian texts that are just barely starting to get translated to English, like the Bhagavad Gita. Um, so that was kind of the, the one that kind of broke it open for the Age of Enlightenment, was this concept of uh, yoga defined by the Bhagavad Gita. And so these are the first four styles of yoga. Um, the Bhagavad Gita says there's four styles of yoga. It says there's, do you remember them from the book? It's Bhakti Yoga, there's Karma Yoga, Raja Yoga, and um, what's the other one? Oh, Gyana Yoga. So Gyana Yoga, which I'm saying. Is it the Y-N? It's the J-N-A-N-A. Yeah, it's like Gyana Yoga. Um, so that's the yoga of wisdom. So you use study, you use um, knowledge, discernment to attain enlightenment. There's bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion to attain enlightenment, spiritual freedom. And there is raja yoga. So that is, um, it's interesting that raja yoga is in there because Patanjali hasn't written his thing yet, right? So the Gita is already talking about this raja yoga, whatever it is. But Patanjali hasn't written this thing yet. Um, later on, we'll come to find out a much deeper, uh, more defined um, version of it. But essentially, it's you know the eight limbs that require yoga to begin with a moral and ethical compass. And Patanjali, you know, I mean, the the implication of Raja Yoga is that one cannot attain freedom for oneself if you're not starting on a foundation of virtue, essentially. Kindness, compassion, non-stealing, truth, you know, all these things. The yamas and the niyamas. So it's no surprise, that it's no coincidence that it starts with those. And then, of course, there's karma yoga, which is um, kind of the big meat of the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, that's, karma means action. So a lot of times we think, oh, you're going to get your karma. But karma is a bigger concept than that. Karma is this idea of action. And so within the idea of action, that's where this kind of aspect, this more conventional thinking of karma yoga, of cause and effect, comes into play. 
but you know, a big proponent of karma yoga was uh, Gandhi. So Gandhi was known to read the Bhagavad Gita every day. He read from that book every day of his life. He was a huge yogi. I mean, when he was assassinated, he was chanting Ram, Ram's name, which is from the Ramayana. He's the god of love. And, uh, and I mean, ultimately that's the meaning of karma yoga, is this concept that, um, well, let me back up. So, so yogi has a choice. A yogi can start to learn these practices in, from these tantric practices, from the Hapakarapiko or maybe you know some tantric texts. He starts to learn these practices that give him, first of all, well-being. So the first step of yoga is you you achieve health. You get really strong in body, in mind, emotions. Then you start to become favored in the natural world. You start, like, things start to happen for you. And it's almost as if, like, you're just lucky. You know, when we talk about, like, you hear people say that all the time, there's, like, there's no luck. Like, you make your own luck. Well, yoga is definitely a big proponent of that. Then the next phase in a successful yoga practice, you start to go beyond just being lucky, and you start to gain powers. You start to, like, manifest things. You start to transform things and shift things. And this is, a, this is a high level of yoga is when you become an alchemist. Not only do you become an alchemist of the outside world, which is, by the way, uh, a pitfall along the path, um, can be considered a pitfall if you get kind of caught up in the, oh, check this out, I can, you know. I mean, if you ever read like autobiography of a yogi, he talks about like yogis who used to stop their heart or um, melt ice two feet around them in the Himalayas just by doing pranayama or open their mouth and butterflies would come out or turn into jaguars or tigers or bengals, you know, all sorts of like crazy, really ridiculous kind of claims. Um, but the thing is, is if you do all these austerities, all these karmas, all these yogas of action to be able to achieve these things and then you waste it on just the showmanship of it, then you have to start not just where you began, but you have to start further back because you can't unknow what you knew along the way, if that makes sense. So, hence the kind of importance of initiation in yoga, to really start to get into the higher levels of yoga, into the true purpose of the alchemical process or the transformational purpose of yoga. Um, this is only really for people who start to get to a level of uh, devotion, of like really um, clear will and determination and purposeful intent. So it's not for the tourist. The person who's like, yeah, this yoga is pretty cool. Like, I'm here because, you know, it hurts going to make me look hot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, so then, ultimately, that transformation leads us to liberation. And the liberation is important because it's not that there isn't duty or there's not hardship but it's defined as this unveiling of reality as it is so the big underlying concept in yoga is that the truth of things um, because our very inability to perceive it correctly is is veiled to us we can't see it and so we do all these yoga practices to eventually pull the veil off and to be able to see things as they truly are. 
And so it's not this, um, I've already described as like being a very ordinary state. It's a state of well-being. It's a state where all the virtue lives. There's peace, there's joy, there's bliss. But it's not like, um, you know, we like to think of enlightenment as maybe this place that's beyond the human experience. But everything I've read and everything that I've, I've ever kind of studied in terms of people who've gotten to these places of perception, life is very ordinary. <laughs> and there's that old Buddhist saying, um, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. You know? Um, so yeah, so that's the Bhagavad Gita's... Oh, I didn't quite finish this concept. So, along this path, there is the great uh, temptation to go out into the woods and find liberation as quick as possible. And there's different modes to find this in the classical Hindu version. There's 40 types of yoga in Hindu pantheon, and there's like 12 modern ones that we'll talk about a little bit. And then postmodern ones, which are things like hot yoga, anusara yoga, ashtanga yoga. Those aren't quite the same as like the difference between mantra yoga or laya yoga. Um, but anyway, um, karma yoga asks us, don't go and find enlightenment right away and leave the world behind. What, what's asked of you to do to really properly serve with your action is to bring the world together, bring people together, and to bring them to this enlightenment together. So the concept of karma yoga is that um, you almost sacrifice your own ev evolution and development to bring others around you and together with you so they come with you. And this concept is similar in Buddhism to Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is the same thing, where they work and work and work to get to the point where they're right at the threshold of nirvana or enlightenment, and then they refrain from going past it and sacrifice their own enlightenment so they come back into the world, to be of the world, to be able to serve other people, to help elevate them. So, questions so far? Am I just... <laughs> this is a lot, right? I'm just uh, <laughs> taking it in. Well, I'm just uh, blown away about the amount of um, of how studied you are and all of the stuff that you can regurgitate it, regurgitate, <laughs> and uh, expand and put it into your own words to help explain, you know, and connect it. Uh, so I'm just like. <laughs> Starstruck. <laughs> well, but um, um, yes. Um, so, as far as like any comments about the material, <laughs> I'm just like, I had a question about Asana. Yeah. When when did it transition into being such a such a big part? Very good because question. if you talk to people on the street about yoga, it's it's not the eight limbs. It's just you know, or I hold my body in some funny way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Actually, the Hatha Yoga Pratipika is one of the first texts to start to outline um, numerous asanas. So they're the first ones. So, you know, Patanjali does mention asana. It's not really mentioned before that. Anything before that, the only real thing that shows up that is a blip on the radar of asana is this seal there's a like a her hermetic seal like i don't know some kind of 
uh, carved out seal that's from the Indra's Valley where all this was before it was called India or whatever and it's a dude sitting in uh, yoga asana but yoga asana in all of the classical pre-classical archaic period was just this was just siddhasana or lotus pose um, so it wasn't until the Pratapika came around 15th century hmm. where they said they say this they say first of all asana should be done to, to create an adamantine body. So what they're saying is creating strength of the highest order. And the strength isn't to be just um, considered outward. Asana also creates inward strength. Um, and they say Shiva taught us 8 million, I think it's 8 million 400, 2,000, 20,000 asanas of which we will teach 32 in this practice. So most of the, the Hatha Yoga Samhitas, which are more common, so like in Tantra books, you're going to read more about rituals and things like that and like ceremonies. In the Hatha Yoga books, um, get, hey, hi guys, come on in. We're just talking about asana right now, how that came to be. So this is a very heady conversation, apparently. It's not even written, just saying how my regurgitation powers are very impressive. <laughs> uh, so the asana, um, yeah, so originally it was just 32 postures. And I mean now, like if you look at Darren Rhodes' poster, I actually have it in the office. I think it's like 600 some postures that are proper postures. When I, I listened to an interview of the person who wrote uh, a biography of Devi, uh, who said that a lot of the postures arose from, uh, you know, high school in Germany, high school, okay, that kind of. So these were exercises to keep uh, adolescent boys, yeah, you yeah. know, under control by wearing them out, and they migrated into yoga. And I don't know that. Yeah, yeah. Right or not? So that that's kind of uncovered in. There's a book called Subtle Body by Mike Singleton. And he talks about the early days of Krishnamacharya. So are you guys all familiar with Krishnamacharya? He taught Iyengar. You've heard of Iyengar? Mm -hmm. He taught uh, Patabi Joyce, who's basically he taught him the method for Ashtanga Yoga. Um, Indra Devi. He also taught uh, Desikachar, which was his son who works in, I believe, South America and teaches Vini Yoga. So like of the preeminent yogas of the last hundred years, he like basically laid out three of them because um, Vinny yoga is a style of yoga therapy and that's actually coming back into fashion right now yoga therapy is a very big one um, but yeah he taught this Ashtanga series because his first commission was to teach to the prince and so he was a young man and he couldn't keep him and his friends attention engaged so he just borrowed a lot of stuff supposedly from uh like gymnastics, uh, there's this thing called polling, I think. Have you ever seen it? It's it's like and then wrestling as well. Polling is like an old Indian sport where they literally had a pole. It was like 14 foot pole, I think, and they would run and like uh, wrap their legs around yeah. it and then do weird like hold the posture as firm as they could, like upside down or whatever. So a lot of these like big, it's almost like parkour with a pole. If you know parkour, <laughs> is, right? So, however, Ashtanga yogis will argue that this is not true that um, or even if it is true it was supplemented onto a much older that that the 
primary series, all these sequences are thousands of years old. So, and it's just been, you know, it's been lost in terms of the documentation. The paper trail's gone, but the oral tradition, the memory, the, the teacher to student discipleship has passed it on through the ages. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff, like I was saying, with like, you know, the guy opening his mouth and butterflies coming out, you know, like, or turning into a Bengal tiger. Like, a lot of this stuff is like, it's not uncommon that yoga teachers, especially great yoga masters, would use exaggeration as a form to motivate their students. They would say, and if you look in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the, the original text has got the 32 asanas that started us on this Pandora's box of the 600 <laughs> postures that we use today. Um, you know, every other chapter it says, you know, if, you, if one masters Mayurasana, which is peacock pose, you will overcome death and become immortal. You know? But what does it mean? What does it mean to master? Does that mean to do it for three minutes? I mean, because that would probably be mastering it, because I've never seen anybody do it for more than 30 seconds. You know what I mean? Like, you know, peacock pose? It's the one where you, like, put your hands on the ground, mm-hmm. your elbows into your stomach, and you lift your legs up in a straight line. So you're, like, floating mm-hmm. above the earth, like, you know, kind of like plank. <clears throat> There's your peacock demonstration. <laughs> and I did it for three seconds, and that's about my max today. Yeah, it's hard. Um, so a lot of the exaggerations, they can't really be confirmed or denied because a lot of them, like, you know, like practicing alternate nostril breath for, you know, three hours a day, twice a day for six months. Who's going to go do that? <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe somebody did back then. And I'm sure that if you, there's something to being that dedicated, that even if it's not the method that gets you there, that level of dedication to something and that level of mental focus, I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, powerful benefits to that. I like Garrett Fierstein talks about, um, this concept of illusion. And one of the main purposes of yoga is to focus the mind like a laser beam to be able to cut through the veil of illusion to be able to see reality as it is. And that's a really interesting concept because, you know, if you think about the classical period, like Patanjali, Raja Yoga, the concept that they're not even dealing with the body. They're focusing on just meditation techniques. So they're like the Michael Jordans of the mind. You know what I mean? And... It's an interesting thing because look at today. We all have such monkey minds. Like, people aren't focused. People don't have strong mental capacity. You know, I mean, it takes a lot. It's far and few in between where people aren't, you know, I don't know, what's the word? ADD? You know, we're a very distracted culture. And yet, you know, there's this there's this concept that maybe they were in a different place then too. So throughout the ages, we've shifted spiritually as well. And I've talked about this in other satsangs, but the yugas. So there's this term yuga. Do you know what yuga is? Time. Or a it's like an era. Yeah. An era, yeah. Yeah, totally. Time. So there's four different eras and then it just repeats itself. We just so happen to be in the Kali Yuga, which is the final one, which is the most like darkest horrific, awful one that there is. Um, And so the practices that they taught 2,000 years ago when we, you know, perchance we're in a different era, they're not going to be as effective because we're walking around in a modern age where we're only three chakras awake. 
sometimes we're only in our root chakra. We're in flight or fight constantly, right? Some people aren't even in their second chakra where they can actually start to see the difference between black and white in the world. Or, let alone coming up to the third chakra where they can start to like create things and manifest things on a, on a very uh, gross material level. But you know, back in the day, 2,000 years ago, when Patanjali was teaching these different kinds of teachings, the concept was that you know, people were just naturally more spiritually awake. All six chakras you know, in, within the body were already kind of plugged in. So you could much easier just go right into samyama or samadhi. You, know, you just kind of jump through the eight limbs to pop up here into your command center, Ajna Chakra. Whereas today, it's like, there's no way you're going to get there because we've devolved spiritually. And because we've devolved spiritually, there's a physical price we pay for that. So the subtle body is that place in between our spirit and our physical body. And so if it diminishes, that means we're also going to diminish physically. And so we're going to suffer consequences physically. We're going to be able to, we're, it's, we're going to get fidgety. We're not going to be able to sit still for these multi-hour meditation practices. I mean, most people to this today, you say, hey, let's meditate for 15 minutes. And they're like, oh my God, that's an eternity. <laughs> like you want me to sit still and not say anything and do it? And be silent for 15 minutes? Like, that's a hard thing to do. You know? So that's why it's very lucky that we have the evolution of Hatha Yoga because it starts to purify the body from the ways in which it has maybe taken a turn from what it used to be in a spiritual sense. And then that's even greater because, you know, you've got. You know, after Hatha Yoga, you get these, um, all these branches that come out of Tantra Yoga, like Kundalini Yoga, um, modern styles, Anusara Yoga, Ayengar Yoga, Ashtanga Yoga, um, Integral Yoga, Laya Yoga, uh, Kriya Yoga, which is Yogananda's version, or Soma Yoga, which is one of his disciples' versions. But the cool thing about this whole prospect and this whole project of yoga currently today is that yoga doesn't say, hey, I have to be just one way or I have to be this certain way. Meaning, yoga allows itself to meet you where you're at. And to be like, okay, what do you need? Do you need to do mantra? Do you need to do asana? Do you need to do pranayama? Do you need to do meditation? Or maybe you need to do a mix of all of the manifold practices of yoga and techniques, but just like a recipe. You start to add a little bit of this, and it's three parts matcha, three parts pranayama, one part asana, you know, and there's, this can be overwhelming quickly without a teacher and without um, also svadhyaya, and study of the tradition. So if we start to reinvent the wheel from where we're at, like we see a lot of this coming up nowadays, like people are saying, oh, you should come do my, my yoga. What's your yoga? It's called Austin Yoga. It's Austin Yoga. It's completely radical. We drink beer and pet dogs. And you know what I mean? It's like, well, it can't be completely divorced from the tradition. Like, it still has to have a link to the golden chain, as Shanti Shanti would call it. That golden chain of power and energy and resource that we can tap into that's been handed down 
over the generations from teacher to student, teacher to student. And this is something I think a lot of times we struggle with in the current situation of yoga, which is how do we find a teacher? How do we find a good teacher? Because it's, you know, I mean, we've got a lot of teachers here at Cambio. We've got like 45 teachers at Cambio. But this is, uh, this is kind of the other side of the coin. You know, whereas in like the last hundred years, you found a teacher in India, they were your guru. And you imposed on them the image of God. So this is one way to enlightenment, spiritual liberation, is to choose somebody who can become a role model for you for what it means to be divinely embodied. And you choose somebody outside yourself because to choose yourself would take a very unique kind of person. Most of us don't have that type of strength to be like, I'm going to find God through myself alone. But based on the very nature of the way we perceive through our senses, it almost needs to be outside of ourselves. It's very difficult to find it within ourselves. So this is why the guru thing was so has been so big, is you find a teacher and they say, this is what you must do. And you don't question them, even if it may seem insane or abusive or traumatic or crazy, you know, where they say like, you know, I need you to get it before 30 and you're going to recite the Sanskrit alphabet for two and a half hours and then I want you to carry water up from the bottom of the mountain back up to, the, to our cabin and if I don't like the way you carry it, I'm going to make you go back and get a different bucket of water. And then you would say to yourself, well, I believe that this is the embodiment of God to me. This is the person showing me the path, showing me the light, reflecting the light for me. So I will, without question, bow to them and abide by whatever they do, whatever they, no matter how crazy or abusive or obscene it seems. Well, this this has posed a problem in the current world because we get teachers who abuse this power, seemingly, right? And then they back off and say, well, I just did this for your own good. You couldn't see it at the time, but it was all for your growth and for your development. But at the time, it sure didn't seem very kind when you slept with my wife or, you know, <laughs> slapped me in front of the sangha or whatever it was, which, I mean, these things happen. These things happen. Look, you know, look, watch the documentary Rinpoche or... Look up the history of Osho. You know about Osho. Osho's got a crazy history. There was all sorts of there was all sorts of questionable things in that. Well, is it fair to say that because of the different attitudes of folks, the different ages, that Asana has taken the front seat because that's sort of the entryway? And in the past people would start at a different place. Yeah. 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 Well, asana also determines a certain um, visibility. So if I'm your teacher and I ask you to do an asana, essentially I'm asking you to do a meditation with the body that shows me how the quality of your meditation. And so if you're doing an asana very unpresent, unthoughtful, and unmindful, it will be very visible for me. Versus if I say, sit down and be still. I mean, there's some telltale signs you can see. Somebody starts to slump or their head goes to the side. You can see they're not meditating with fervor, with enthusiasm. And this is the same thing about the 
example I used of the guy carrying the water up the hill. I mean, this is the important thing about yoga. All these techniques don't mean diddly squat if they're not done with intention. So going back to that original thing of ethics and morals, it's not just a matter of like, okay, yoga starts with being a good person, but understanding that we need to dive into that commitment with like the utmost desire. It can't just be like, yeah, I really should be a good person to others. Well, that may be easy for you, but maybe it's harder for yourself. You know, like, I should be good to myself, but instead I'm going to flagellate myself with shame for something that I screwed up on at work or because I didn't go run today and I know I should have, you know. Being a good person, it's so flimsy when it's not, there's not a something to leverage against it. And that's why a lot of the times the seeming abuse or devotion to a teacher or even um, the detriment um, and exaggeration of these teachings was used to leverage against the, the lack of discipline in creating a certain um, energy around that intention. So if I say like, oh, I want to be a good yogi, so what? But if there's meaning to it, like, I want to be a good yogi because, you know, my wife died and everything that meant to her to be a good yogi is going to live on through the ways that I live on, you know? We need motivation. We need a directive. We need more than just these flimsy desires because desires come and go all the time, right? I mean, think about it. You want a pizza for dinner? And then all of a sudden, your friend says, no, we're getting tacos. And like, that sounds good, too. I'll just have tacos, you know? <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like, oh, I want to be a good yogi. I'm going to go to yoga. You know, I'm going to start getting back into it. I'll be here every day. I'll be here every week. And then all of a sudden, life happens. And it's the first thing to go because it's really not a priority beyond intentions that are usually superficial and the thing that's kind of stated time and time again by all these great masters is that like this concept of yoga being a teaching of liberation is that one must understand that liberation is the most important thing that is the dharma for your life to become free from ignorance the suffering of ignorance to be able to realize the truth of reality to see it and witness it embody and experience it and this is the hardest thing you will ever do, and it will take all of your effort and all of your lifetime to do it. So, it's tough to fit that in when you gotta catch up on Game of Thrones, you know, before season <laughs> seven starts. I think one of the reasons is the first thing that people drop off when life gets crazy is also because we have a tendency to think of going to yoga class as a luxury. Like in our culture, it's seen seen as like just something fun that we do. It's not essential mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Yeah, that's a great point. Why is that? I don't know. Like when I first started, you know, it seemed same to me as like going to a gym or going to some other kind of fitness class. Yeah, like I, I didn't go to classes until I'd been practicing for a year by myself, 
before I decided I needed instruction, badly enough to pay for it anyway. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I left Texas, I moved here, and it's like, well, I need to find a new teacher now. I you know, moved away from my favorite teacher that I loved and adored, and I went to her class every time she taught. And then I was like, well, I should probably find a job first before I spend money on this thing that I like. But then it's like, you know, a couple of years go by, and it's like, who am I anymore? Why I haven't been to a yoga class in a year? Like, I don't even know what I'm doing. And it's like coming to realize like that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fun hobby. Like that was an essential part of who I was, and it helped keep me in line with you know, everything that I wanted to be as a human being. And, you know, it's almost like going to church without the judgment and the... It can be. Yeah. That can happen at yoga, too. Don't, don't be fooled. That can happen. But I like what you said, and I want to reiterate this, is that earlier I talked about this question of, you know, there's times in the history of humanity where these four questions were important and times when they weren't important, which is, who am I? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? And if you're asking these questions with sincerity, it is going to inevitably start to inculcate the desire to develop yourself. The desire to, first of all, accept things as they are, so you therefore can transform them. And if that's not happening, if you lose sight of that, or those questions get answered in superficial means, um, or superficial answers like what am I doing here oh well the mainstream media would tell me I'm being a consumer right so that's really my purpose of life is to go buy you know Tyson chicken wings shop at Kohl's or whatever it might be you know I, I don't know why I'm picking on those <laughs> uh, but you know to join in the mass consumption of capitalism as we know it mm -hmm. and that should fill you up but it doesn't and it's designed not to so therefore you keep working to keep buying to consume then to you know destroy and consume again and the cycle keeps you going in this never-ending unfulfilling and distracting mode of being in life and you can spend decades there you can spend your whole life there so sometimes like you know what is it that brought you guys here tonight, you know? Was it a trauma? Was it an accident? Was it something where you're just like, there's a truth in you that's like, this isn't working. This isn't right. Something isn't clicking. Even though I'm, these questions are at the heart of every human being alive, you know, the fact that you're here tells me that the answers given to you by the majority of society probably aren't satisfying to some degree. That's why you're here tonight, right? You're looking for something deeper. Because you've already done tried that. You've already gone out, bought the thing, <laughs> spent the money, consumed it, and then you, guess what, were just as empty as you were before you started. I mean, can you tell me, can you name one thing that you have that you own that is not temporary, that brings you everlasting joy? I think the only things that I would say would even fit into that would be like books, but that's because they give you something that is everlasting. That makes sense. The knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like enter or entertainment, right? 
But that's well, not necessarily I'm, I'm, like my most prized possession is like I have a really nice copy of the Brothers Karamazov. So, hmm. like, yes, kind of entertainment, but mostly knowledge with that. One. Right. But there. But then, how do you use that knowledge? Because some people have the kind of brain where it's knowledge and knowledge out. You know, and it's not. It's not being expounded upon. It's not. You know. That's true. Um, it's not transformative necessarily always. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people that own that book as an investment, and not, maybe not even know what's in it, but they That's know true. That it's an object that they could sell to somebody else for lots of money, for example. That's true. I guess that comes down to is that's the thing that sort of I think about in terms of bringing all these people into the studio and it's almost like a like a bait and switch kind of thing <laughs> people come in thinking oh yeah I'm going to get buff it and, is. and at least totally some is. of them begin to realize that there's this is just a surface this is just part of the eight limbs and some of them begin to ascribe to the other things that are associated with yoga other people show up and just work out and go home and it doesn't affect them and so there's like this whole balancing act in terms of how people approach yoga so. you know what's funny um, for me uh, my yoga journey uh, started kind of like what you're saying through the asana practice and then um after going through some teacher training and currently in teacher training and now teaching, um, just starting that, I've, I've noticed that um, you can provide a message to people, right? Mm -hmm. And the message is genuine and from the heart, but if they're maybe not in a place to, um, for it to flip a switch, right? Then, uh, it's not going to be there, but um, I think with the continual um, exposure to it, like what you're saying, things don't line up from the outside, and all of a sudden, what you're seeking, you're not sure what it is. Something from here maybe bridges the gap to um, to something that maybe is is more fulfilling than what you see on the surface, than what your life has been about. Yeah, I think from my personal experience, I you know my wife has done yoga for a long time. She kept saying you should try it, and something happened two and a half years ago that prompted me to come to a class. And I can't tell you what it is, but you know, it's almost as if there was an external force that said, okay, well, and there is a sutra that says now for yoga or something like right. Yeah, now yoga starts. Now, yoga. now begins the study yeah. and practice. So it's almost as if I that sutra just sort of popped into my mind. You know, after so many years of not doing it, all of a sudden it was like, well, okay, now it's time to do, to do yoga, so. What this kind of make me think of is like, when I, well, I, for, I grew up Catholic, so we were always told yoga is evil, yoga is the devil, like you're gonna be consecrated to Satan or whatever. And like, I went back, um, recently to try to like watch like why why do they say that it doesn't make any sense and it was really interesting because I was listening to this priest who um I wasn't really a huge fan of him but he was saying he like went through like all the arguments pro and against um and one thing he said was that 
frequently for some reason or other, and we don't know why, people will come to yoga and then most of them will eventually leave the church. And the thing that was interesting to me about that is that, like, last satsang that I was here, we talked about how yoga is the one place where you go and you are just accepted. And I think that what happens, because it happened to me, like, I, I have grown up Catholic, I've been in the Catholic Church forever, and, like, they say that they are supposed to accept everyone. They say that's what Jesus said. They say that's what they're supposed to do. But then they don't do it at most churches. There are churches that do, mm-hmm. but most churches, they don't do that. But then you come to yoga, and they're doing it. And it's like, well, my religion told me this is what you're supposed to do, but these people are doing it, and my religion's not doing it. And the, o- like, the only reason why I was able to stay Catholic, even though yoga showed me something that like the church wasn't doing is because I've been in states where there were churches that did show it. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, it can, it's just that people are really fucked up some places. Well, yeah. And I would say the same is true for yoga. There's some studios where that doesn't exist. You know, the, the question of this month's theme is what is yoga? And what I really want to end this with is the concept that yoga is, is a living question in your own heart. Yoga is not something that we can just say, this is what it is, done, and a story. It's something that you live the question rather than define the answer with. Um, and the beautiful thing about this satsang, about your practice, about your dedication, staying with it, is that through that, you are bringing the answer, which is unanswerable with words, to earth. Because the answer of what yoga is, is an experience, ultimately. It's not a philosophy. It's not a theory. This idea that we can put words around in terms of liberation and enlightenment and things like this, the words don't do it truly any justice. And that's, that's the thing, is we need to recognize that, you know, I think as the great, they always say, no effort is wasted in the practice of yoga. You may not find it in this lifetime, but, you know, if you're showing up on the mat with the intention to become a better version of yourself, and you're open to tap into something, a greater power than just your ego, um, it gives you the opportunity to bring that greater power, wherever it comes from in this universe, down to a very specific place on Earth. And that, literally, in my opinion, you are making the world a better place by doing yoga. Even if your yoga practice is not evolved to the point of, you know, I'm on the spiritual path of yoga and I'm working on transformation, even if it's still just to get buff, um, you know, there's, there's cracks. There's cracks in that practice where the light comes through and there's, a, there's moments of stillness, there's moments of silence where we're seeing something that shines a light and reflects the light beyond um, beyond the ordinary world when we're just moving through life in a very thoughtless and mindless way. Like if, if the very least, the very least a practice will bring some mindfulness and some thoughtfulness to the way in which a human being is interacting within their body and therefore within the world. And no effort is wasted if, if even that is at the most base level because it starts start something like you said Steve Atta yeah I was last two weeks I've been over in 
backpacking and I, we were staying in Buena uh, Vista and I turn on the shower and there's a spider in the tub and it's like struggling and I said, eh, it's just a spider and then for some reason my mind said, what would Austin do? <laughs> I, and because I've heard you talk about you know veganism and all that stuff I thought turned off the shower got the spider out put him someplace else but that's exactly the thought that I had because you were sort of an example of yeah. you know being kind to everything so yeah. you know that's sort of like that little crack I guess you know. well and and it's cool because like you know we may not be able to define yoga in terms of like absolutes, but here's a good here's a good uh, litmus test of if we're doing yoga on or off the mat. Are we being inclusive? Are we helping people belong to things such as kindness, compassion, love? Are we being judgmental? Are we being exclusive? Are we going better than? That's the difference. When we are starting to make decisions where we become more compassionate, when we become more kind when we become clearer and when we start to accept the differences of another human being um, you know it may not be the penultimate definition of what yoga is but that's that's a really good start that's a really good place and that's I mean it's funny because 10 years into teaching yoga for as simple as that sounds that isn't always so obvious because you know we can't get into these places where well my yoga is better or oh this yogi's being dumb right now or this student needs to learn this and we can start to just because we're just creatures of judgment it's our part of our nature so we can it's our default so to slip into that groove is a natural fit it's easy to be there and not even realize you're doing it and so sometimes yoga can look like getting uh, T-boned by life and knocked out of that groove and it may be really uncomfortable it may be really suck but sometimes if we let it happen enough with enough grace and enough acceptance it's the, the most discomfortable aspect of it is just having to postpone your shower to go save a spider you know sometimes it can be that simple sometimes it's a big spiritual smack down you know but sometimes it's just like, ah, pain in the ass. I'm gonna turn the shower off, find a piece of cardboard for the spider, and save him. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys, thanks for sitting in. I hope you got something from this. Do we want to? Um, sometimes we like to finish with just going around and saying the most important thing we got from it. Um, do you want to? You want to do that? Or do you, if you gotta go, that's understandable too we're right at time but if you'd like to share your final thought we'll go around and just give yourself the last word (laughs) (laughs) well I guess for me like it's it's just kind of like encouraging because I've been just I'm five months postpartum so hormones are all kinds of crazy and I'm like trying to like the last 30 days, I tried to do 30 days of yoga, and I did yoga almost every day, but it was just like 15 minutes here, five minutes there, like, okay, she's not crying, I'll do it right now, or like, whatever, like, um, and I just didn't get to do, it didn't go how I wanted at all, um, but like, when you were talking about like, the powers, and I don't, like, I wouldn't say that, like, 
I don't think of myself as like super far on the path of yoga. There's still so much like asana that I'm not even like there on. But like there's so many things that in the last year have changed for me because of yoga. Mm-hmm. Last year I started coming regularly and I couldn't have kids. And I have a baby girl now. And like that would never, I firmly believe it would never have happened if it hadn't been for coming to yoga. I think I was doing three times a week. Um, and then, yeah, hmm. it's crazy. And then um, um, when I was engaged, like I had like, I had something going on with my stomach and they didn't know what it was. And then somehow I just knew it was a stomach ulcer. Started taking like vitamin E just because something told me that was what was going on. And I was just, and it worked and it was gone and it never came back. I was like, that was again, like it was like that mindfulness that came from yoga that I just felt what my body needed. Mm-hmm. And then Willow actually picked her name because she was so clear with what she wanted the entire time. And everyone I've talked to who's been pregnant other than me, like, they have no clue what I'm talking about. But, like, I did yoga consistently through being pregnant, and I just, there was my voice, but it was higher, and then there was her voice, and it was lower, and I could hear what she wanted. We would literally have arguments about what I what we wanted, whether it was to eat or whatever, and I would, like, convince her of things. I convinced her over Christmas break that I wanted a cheeseburger, and I convinced her it would be good, and she ended up being okay with it. I had morning sickness all the through. But that one meal, I was able to eat. <laughs> and that was a big deal. But, like, all of that was because of the mindfulness that I was able to develop. And just, like, physical things that I didn't even know were happening. I didn't even know I was pregnant until 12 weeks because we didn't think I could get pregnant. So we didn't even bother tracking anymore. Mm-hmm. And then we were at 12 weeks and we had lost every other child we conceived before nine weeks. We were just like wait, she's what? <laughs> like, 12 weeks along? What are you talking about? Mm. And so it's just encouraging for me, like, to think about, like, I know for sure that all of that came from yoga mm-hmm. because it was not there before yoga and then it was afterwards. Wow. So, that's, I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty good last word. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. <laughs> I don't think anybody can top that. Are you heading down to class? Yeah, I'm going down to class. Okay. So. Do you have anything you want to share before you go? No. Okay. Is that Holly's class? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone yeah. 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 Yeah.